You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and happy Friday. I hope that you guys have had an incredible week. This week, I have no case updates or anything that I need to share with you guys, so we are just going to hop into today's case. Today's case is taking us to North Carolina, where the life of a young teen with a beautiful and bright future ahead of her gets cut far too short. Today's case is on the murder of Danielle Locklear. Danielle Locklear was born on July 10, 1998, to her parents Rona Fowler and William Dawson in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Growing up, she had an incredible childhood with a large extended family. And at the time of her death, Danielle was 15 years old and just beginning to figure out her way in the world. She was described by her mom as a mischievous little firecracker that never let anything in life pass her by. She was a witty young girl that was spunky and so full of life. There wasn't a time where Danielle wasn't happy. She was just this literal ray of sunshine in her entire family's and friends' lives. Danielle was absolutely beautiful. She had these bright blue eyes that stuck out against her olive complexion, and she had dark hair. And people always noticed her. In 2014, Danielle was living with her aunt, China and her grandparents because it was around this time that her mother, Rona, was going through a nasty divorce. Danielle had gone to visit her family in the summer of 2013 in Hope Mills, North Carolina, which is about two hours from her home. After spending the summer there, she really wanted to live there and begin her freshman year of high school at Hope Mills. And all of her family agreed. Danielle went to the first day of school at Southview High School and immediately everyone was talking about the new girl in town. Her friend Caroline tells Dateline that people were so intimidated to talk to Danielle because she was just so beautiful. She recalls that Danielle and her were in the auditorium and nobody would approach her. So Caroline took it upon herself to walk up to her, tap her on the shoulder, and when Danielle turned around, Caroline complimented her about her hair. And Danielle ended up just making jokes, and the two of them were quickly laughing and chatting about regular teenage things. These two became very good friends after this, and Caroline then introduced her to her friend group, and Danielle just fit right in. Before long, she wasn't the new girl, and she was just another one of the group. 
Caroline also said that Danielle was the type of person that would literally talk to anyone, and she's just always so kind to everyone. On top of being drop-dead gorgeous, an incredible friend, Danielle was also a straight-A student and was doing ROTC at her new school. Being a teenage girl, she was very big into social media, as most teenagers are. And she would post videos to YouTube of herself doing new makeup tricks that she learned or videos of herself doing her hair. She also would hop on YouTube and watch a tutorial on how to bake something, and then she would turn around and bake it, and everyone in her family said that it always turned out amazing. Prior to the school year starting, Danielle had started dating a young man by the name of Jamichael Malloy, and the two of them had met at a summer church camp, and Danielle's aunt and grandparents all had known Jamichael's family forever because they all attended the same church. Aunt Chena and Danielle's grandmother both recall the two meeting each other for the very first time before school started, and they both said that right away that you could see them looking at each other and they had this look in their eyes. There were sparks that were practically flying and the chemistry was completely clear from the get-go. The two quickly made it official and they were seen around town as a cute couple. Chena describes the way that when Danielle started dating Jamichael Malloy, there was this newfound pep in her step, and soon Danielle was writing doodles and hearts all over her notebooks and scratch paper that was laying around, and they all said Jamichael's name, they said her name, Jamichael and Danielle Malloy, and so she was really getting into this new relationship. She was having all these feelings for this boy. It was apparent that love was in the air, and this was Danielle's first real boyfriend. Jamichael was a senior at another school in town, and by all accounts, he had his life together. Her family all recalls him being a quiet young man who was always very respectful when he came over. He also was a good student at his school. He played soccer on the varsity soccer team for his school. And on top of all of that, Jamichael was going to be joining the Marines after he graduated from high school. And this goal of joining the Marines was something that Jamichael had planned to do forever. It was something that he had always dreamed about, and he was really close to making it a reality. Overall, the relationship between Jamichael and Danielle was your typical high school relationship. They had their ups, they had their downs, and sometimes they would break up over a fight. But they always would get back together within a few days. Again, just your typical high school young love. And by all accounts that I could see, everyone in Danielle's family really loved Jamichael. And they kind of gave this, you know, seal of approval. This guy is a good guy. This could potentially be something that is really good for Danielle. And even though that they're young, I mean, high school sweethearts get married every day. So let's fast forward to Tuesday, March 11th, 2014. Danielle was home with her grandfather that evening because her grandmother and Aunt China had to go out of town for a doctor's appointment. After Danielle and her grandfather ate dinner together, and just before she went to bed, she asked her grandfather if it was okay if she walked down the road just a few houses down to give her friend a notebook that she needed for school. 
Her grandfather agreed, but told her to make it quick. Danielle left the house sometime around 10 p.m., never to return. Chena says in her Dateline interview that while out of town in Atlanta, something came over her that night that something was off. She just had this feeling. And this was before any calls or messages were made that anything was wrong. She said she just had this weird feeling wash over her that she couldn't shake and she struggled all night to sleep. The following morning, she got the call that Danielle never returned home that night. And when they heard this, they knew that this wasn't like Danielle. And they immediately turned around, canceled their trip to this doctor's appointment, and went back home to Hope Mills. They also called Rona to let her know that Danielle never made it home, and she also immediately packed a bag and rushed to get to her family's house. After notifying China about Danielle, the grandfather then called the police. When China arrived back to the house, the officers were already at the home. Everyone was adamant to the police that Danielle was a good girl. She was a straight-A student, and she would never run away. But sometimes, as we know, we don't always know what our teens are up to. We all once were teens at one point as well, and we probably are all thinking about times that we had lied about certain situations. Sometimes teens, they have these secret lives that they are living, that they are keeping completely in the dark from their loved ones. So the authorities were hopeful that Danielle was just another teenage girl who went over to a friend's house or went to the beach or something along those lines with a boyfriend and that she would show back up. When authorities didn't do much that very first day, the family worked to do their own search, beginning by calling around to anyone that they could think of. The first person that they called was Danielle's boyfriend, Jamichael. He told China that the two of them had broken up and they hadn't spoke for a few days. This wasn't really a surprise to China because as I stated, the pair were on and off frequently. Then China called the high school and she learned that Danielle had skipped school on that day that she went missing. For China, this was a complete surprise because she hadn't ever known her niece to skip school. And then China remembered a conversation that she had with Danielle on March 10th, the day before she went missing. China said that sometime just before 6 p.m. she was getting home and spotted Danielle running across the driveway. And when she got out of her car, she asked Danielle what she was doing and where she had been. And Danielle told her that some of her friends had gone to the creek that was located down the road and behind the subdivision that they lived in. She said that it was a place that her friends sometimes would go to hang out, and they had been bugging her to go out there too. She said that she finally agreed, but she promised her aunt that she wouldn't be going back there again because it was such a mess down there. China told her, yeah, you're right, you're not going back because you're not allowed to. And Danielle once more agreed and said that she promised she wouldn't. When China remembered this conversation, something in her mind went off that she needed to go down to this creek, but she didn't know exactly where it was. 
So she spotted a kid in the neighborhood and asked him if he knew where this creek was, which he did, and he agreed to show Chena the way to get to it. Chena and this kid are walking the path that leads to the stream where everyone would hang out. All of a sudden, the kid says, hey, look, and he points at something on the ground. There in the mud, Chena spotted something that made her hair stand up on end. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. On March 12, 2014, with the help of a neighborhood kid, Danielle Locklear's Aunt Chena is making her way to the creek that was known to be a popular hangout spot for the high school kids. There, carved in the mud, was the single word, help. With her 15-year-old niece missing, this was completely unnerving. And it was unknown if this was just some kids being silly or if someone, potentially her niece, carved that there in a plea for help. A little further down the path, she finally came across the creek down a steep embankment. This again was a place that Chena didn't even know existed, but it was clear that the kids of the neighborhood had visited this place often. There, they found clothes that kids had left behind after swimming in the creek, old homework, they found random playing cards tossed about, old fire pits, and Chena even spotted a bath towel that belonged to her home. Chena goes back to the home and alerts the authorities of what she found. They followed Chena to the path towards the creek, and while walking back to it, she looks down at one point and spots a sock lying near the path. This sock was one that Chena recognized too. This was one of Danielle's fuzzy night socks, and she knew for a fact that it had belonged to Danielle because she had just purchased those socks for her not long before she went missing. The sock appeared to be rolled up like it had been taken off of her foot. The fact that this sock was one that Danielle only wore at night was found out there. It was all just very weird to her. She knew that Danielle had been down at the creek the day before she went missing, but Danielle wouldn't have been wearing those socks then. She knew that the sock must have been an important clue, so the authorities picked it up as evidence. Another thing that Danielle's family noticed as well as authorities was that her typical buzzing social media presence had completely halted. She hadn't been active on any of her social medias, including Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook, which this was completely unusual for the popular teen. 
Had she ran off with friends, everyone believed that she would have still continued to use her socials because she was just that type of girl. They also learned from some of the other kids that went to the high school that allegedly Danielle had started to get mixed up with the wrong crowd. And this had Danielle's family fearing that maybe they truly didn't know the real Danielle. While they were trying to piece things together, Chena spotted Danielle's friend that had lived a few doors down, and she was the one that Danielle had supposedly gone to go see on that night. Chena ran over and asked her, like, hey, have you seen Danielle? Did you see Danielle that night? And the friend seemed a little bit confused and said, no, she hadn't seen Danielle, but she had stated that the two of them had been texting on that evening. And this friend also had pictures of Danielle from earlier on in the day that she had gone missing. These pictures had been taken at that creek during the school day when Danielle and all of her friends had skipped class to go play in the water. In these pictures, Danielle looked happy. Chena could see the outfit that Danielle was wearing, and in one of the pictures, Danielle was wearing a pair of glasses that didn't belong to her. There, however, was no group pictures of all of the kids together and only a couple of pictures of Danielle at the creek. Now, here is where Chena is a true detective. This woman worked her butt off trying to find her niece. And prior to all of this, Chena was known as the nosy aunt in the family. So Chena took that picture of Danielle sitting on the ground wearing those glasses, and she zoomed into the lenses of the glasses in that picture. And she found that in the reflection of the glasses, she could see four other people that were present at the creek, but she couldn't make out who they were. Chena asked the friend who else was there, and at first this friend was a little hesitant to say who. But eventually, she got the names of those kids and handed them over to the police. One of those individuals that had been at the creek that day was Danielle's good friend, Caroline. Caroline recalls that she was the one that showed Danielle the creek, and that typically Danielle wasn't one to skip school. But on that day, she approached Caroline and told her that she didn't want to do her presentation in class and had asked if she could tag along with Caroline to the creek. Caroline said that everyone was just having a good time that day, and it was a day full of laughs and good memories. After they finished up at the creek before school would have gotten out, they all left and Danielle headed home and arrived back home around the time she typically would on a school day. Again, Aunt China and her grandmother were gone, so it was just her grandfather who was home. She had dinner with him like nothing was wrong, and the day appeared to be just any normal day. So the authorities were stumped as to why her night sock would be at the creek when she had been there earlier that day. They started to theorize that when Danielle asked to go give that friend the notebook for school, that she was actually going back down to the creek at night. And that when she left the house, she had slipped on her shoes over her night socks. And that is why the sock she only wore at night was found where it was. 
As the days passed, the rumor mill began to circulate, and the authorities learned of a boy named Angel that had been at the creek that day. The rumors were that while at the creek that day, Danielle and Angel were cuddling and caught making out, which some of this would make sense given that Danielle and her boyfriend Jim Michael had apparently broken up days before she went missing. When they found Angel, they learned that he was a good student, but he was known to be a kid that would start fights. Authorities also learned that he had a girlfriend. When they started questioning him about Danielle, Angel stated that he didn't know who she was, didn't know what they were talking about, and he claimed that he wasn't even down at the creek that day with her, which authorities knew was a lie. Investigators were frustrated because they knew this kid was lying and they couldn't figure out why he was lying. Had he done something to Danielle? While authorities were working on trying to figure out how Angel was connected to all of this, the local media was beginning to pick up the story and the flyers with Danielle's picture and information were hung throughout Hope Mills and the rumors and speculation continued to grow. And at this point, authorities weren't ruling any possibilities out. There was the possibility that Danielle really had ran away from home. They were looking into a possible kidnapping. Was she a trafficking victim or did someone kill Danielle? Rona details the days after her daughter went missing. She said that after she got to Hope Mills, she would spend her days with detectives at the police station trying to do whatever she could to find her daughter. But at night, when everyone would turn in and get a few hours of sleep that they could, Rona said that she would sit on the couch staring at the front door, waiting for the moment that her daughter would come through that door and so that she could scold her daughter for giving everyone such a scare. But that moment would never come. Finally, Angel came forward with some details for the police. He stated that he was there that day and that he had spoken with Danielle, but he was not kissing her and the pair certainly were not cuddling. Caroline, Danielle's friend, even backed up his story, telling authorities that this was true. Danielle and Angel were not kissing, and though they spoke, he was actually giving more attention to another girl that was not Danielle. Angel said that the last time he saw Danielle was when she was leaving to head home after the day at the creek. When asked what he did later that night after 9 p.m., his alibi was solid. He had attended a movie with his family, and then after the movie, he was at home with his parents when they believed that Danielle had gone missing. And so Angel was essentially marked off their list as having any kind of involvement. As I said, the police were not ruling out any possibilities, and so they turned their eyes towards Danielle's grandfather because he was the last person to have seen her on that day. Authorities felt that his story seemed a little bit off. When they arrived at the home when she first was reported missing, the grandfather told authorities that he had been playing video games that night when she approached him asking to go down to her friend's house. 
He claimed that he hadn't realized that it was 10 p.m. initially when he told her yes because he had lost track of time playing video games and that if he had known, he wouldn't have let her go. So the authorities felt that this story sounded a little odd and odd that he'd let her leave so late. And then there was the fact that he hadn't reported Danielle missing that night when she didn't return home, but did so the following day. When they asked him why he had waited, he stated that he was under the impression that you had to wait 24 hours before you could report someone missing. But when his wife was panicked over the news, she told him that he needed to immediately call the police. And I have to say really quick that the assumption that you have to wait 24 hours before you can report someone missing is a common assumption. Those who are not heavily invested in the true crime community often think that you have to wait that long. It's not uncommon to hear this. And even still, some police departments try to push that narrative of having to wait, which we all know as crimeaholics that that is not the case. Danielle's grandfather was brought in for further questioning, and he was also given a polygraph test. And then after passing all of that and answering all the questions, he was cleared of having any kind of involvement. As investigations go, we know they continue to work through the list of people that are closest to Danielle, which also included Jamichael. Jamichael willingly came to the station and told the authorities that even though the two had broken up, he was very much still in love with Danielle. Through this entire interview, Jamichael said things between him and her and her family were good and that he was well-liked. But he did mention how Danielle had sometimes expressed feeling like she was a burden to her grandmother and that maybe Danielle had ran away to a friend's house. They asked him what he had done on that night that she went missing, and Jamichael said that he was at home studying with his friend Dominic Locke and that his mom and grandmother were there also, and his family confirmed that he was in fact at home. Police also spoke with Dominic, and he also said that the two of them were studying at Jamichael's house for their ACTs. The police asked to see Jamichael's cell phone, and from their review of it, it also appeared that Jamichael was telling the truth about that night. They also found that there were several text messages that had been sent from Jamichael's phone around the time that Danielle went missing, and that the GPS data from those text messages checked out that they were in fact sent from Jamichael's house. They also found no communication showing that Jamichael and Danielle had arranged to meet up on that night. Jamichael also lived about half an hour away from where Danielle lived, and authorities couldn't find anything to link Jamichael to her disappearance. He also remained very active with her family during the search for her. He would text her family and closest friends asking if anyone had heard from her or seen her or if there was any kind of updates on the case. And he also participated in searches for her. Once more, authorities were stumped where to turn next. And of course, the rumors were still circulating at school which the authorities were wanting to hear all of the rumors because sometimes, as we know, there are some truths in rumors. 
And during the questioning of these high school kids, one name in particular kept popping up, and that name was Derek. Derek was a young man who didn't attend the high school. He had dropped out from the high school at one point, but he was going through the process to try and go back. But he knew Danielle because he was someone who ran around with her crowd of friends and also frequently visited that creek. Some of the kids had told authorities that they had heard that Derek was romantically interested in Danielle, but she turned him down. And this set him off, so he slit her throat and left her in the woods. And this story was told by a handful of kids. So authorities felt like this was a really good lead. So they brought Derek in for questioning. And when he came in, he was acting cool, calm, collected. And he even smoked a cigarette inside of the interrogation room. He seemed completely nonchalant and like he wasn't worried about a single thing. He claimed that he didn't know anything about Danielle other than the fact that she was missing. And when they asked if he had noticed her around, he said yes. He had noticed her and that she had a pretty face. But he claimed that she was too preppy for his liking. And in his words, a goody-goody. He claimed he didn't hang around goody-goodies because they had a tendency to snitch and he didn't like that. He admitted to authorities that he did illegal activity, and that's why he wouldn't run with someone like Danielle. He claimed that on the night that Danielle went missing, he was at home searching for a job on the computer. He claimed that his father left the house around 8.30 that night to go to a pool tournament, and that he had stayed behind looking at jobs online. But he did say something odd. He told authorities that he isn't sure if there would be any history on his computer because he had a habit of clearing the history after every time he used it. This was a flag for authorities because if you weren't doing anything wrong, why would you feel the need to delete the history? And Derek claimed that he did it to protect his account from hackers. They asked him when his father got back home, and he said that he showed up sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. So here the authorities are. With this kid who claims to do illegal activity, he deletes his search history, and nobody to positively say he was at home when he claimed he was home. During this interview with Derek, they also presented him with Danielle's cell phone ping records that they had finally obtained, and the phone showed that it last pinged around 10.45 p.m. on that night of March 11th, 2014, off of I-95. Conveniently in the area where this cell phone ping last came from wasn't far from where Derek lived. Now, in this particular case, the cell phone ping was a broad area. It was not a pinpoint location that we sometimes see in some cases. So authorities put the pressure on Derek, asking him why her phone was in this area that was near his home, and he stated that he didn't know. They asked him if she was alive when she left that area, and he said he didn't know. 
They asked him if she had visited his home with some of their friends, and he said no. No matter what question they asked Eric, his answer remained the same. He hadn't seen Danielle that night, she didn't know where he lived, and he doesn't know why her cell phone would ping in that area. But the police were not happy with his answers, so they obtained a search warrant and they found some things that really made them question things with him further. At the home, they found a fresh burn pit. They also found a large knife that had been sticking out of one of the trees randomly, and propped up against a shed, they found two shovels that appeared to have blood on them. The authorities finally felt that they were getting somewhere and were closer than ever to solving Danielle's case. But after a quick on-site test to see if this was actual blood on those shovels, it turned out to be negative. They brought in Derek's girlfriend for questioning, and she told them there was no way that he could have been near Danielle's that night because Derek didn't even have a car, let alone a driver's license. And though Derek was considered this school bad boy prior to him dropping out, and he did do some shady things, their friend Caroline said that he was a soft-hearted guy. And eventually, he was ruled out. Once more, the investigators were back at square one. The phone evidence showed Danielle's phone moving along I-5 at a relatively quick speed before it goes dark, proving to the authorities that she was, or at least her phone was, inside of a car. The theory of a random abduction really started to ramp up, and people within the community were really concerned for their children's safety. The girls at the high school also expressed being scared to just go outside alone at night. And at this point, Danielle had been missing nearly two weeks. And the authorities were busting their tails, trying to do whatever they can to search for her. They drained ponds, they brought in cadaver dogs, searched miles upon miles of wooded areas, and they even had a team of roughly 300 volunteers come out and scour the creek area top to bottom and still no sign of her. And then finally, there was a sighting of her. A woman called in saying that she was at a local restaurant near the North Carolina and Virginia border, nearly 150 miles from Hope Mills. The caller said that Danielle was at the restaurant at that moment with a man. They dispatched the FBI to this location, and the FBI was taking pictures from outside of the restaurant through a window and sending them back to the Hope Mills PD to review. The girl inside that restaurant looked exactly like Danielle. When the agents approached the girl, unfortunately, it wasn't her. On March 29th, about three weeks after Danielle went missing, the family and the community gathered together for a balloon release. All of Danielle's closest friends attended, including Caroline and Jamichael, and they all just held each other, talking, praying, and crying with her family. On April 2, 2014, Danielle's aunt, Chena, started her day as she always did since Danielle went missing. 
she went to her church and got down on her knees and prayed for answers, for any kind of answers. She was hopeful that Danielle was still alive and would come home, but she was not naive to the fact that there was a possibility that Danielle would not be coming home alive, but instead be found deceased. All Chena wanted was answers, because the not knowing for herself and the entire family was gruesome. Later that evening, Chena's prayers were finally answered. A man by the name of Adam Brinkley, who was a veteran homicide detective and who also helped in the investigation, was off duty and headed home on a route that he didn't normally take. This route took him right over a bridge that crossed over the South River, which forms the boundary between two counties in North Carolina. Now, Adam was a fisherman, and this specific spot was one of his well-known and well-loved fishing holes. As he crossed the bridge at about 35 miles per hour, he glanced out into the water to see if he could get a glimpse of any action that any other fisherman might have been having. And when he looked out there, he spotted something that didn't look right. He immediately pulled over and tried to see if he could get a better look, but whatever it was, it was too far out and his eyes just couldn't detect what it was. But whatever it was just didn't look right. Adam called dispatch and asked if there was a deputy within the area that had a pair of binoculars so he could use them to make sure there wasn't a body in the water. As the off-duty homicide detective Adam Brinkley peered through a pair of binoculars at the object that he spotted on the water, he quickly realized that it appeared to be dark hair at the surface of the water. He immediately knew that it was a body in the river, so he called his boss and told them that the homicide team needed to get down to the South River immediately. Because the river split two counties in half, both counties responded to the scene to begin analyzing everything. As they got a closer look at the body in the river, they were certain that they had found Danielle by the clothing that was found on this body. However, they were needing to get a positive identification from the medical examiner before they could notify her family that she had been found. Unfortunately, her family had heard it first from the media that a body had been recovered from the river and that they were saying that it was potentially Danielle. And I absolutely hate when this happens. No family should ever have to hear that their loved one had been found on the news or from anyone but the proper authorities. My heart hurts thinking about how this was how Danielle's family found out that she was dead. And as the family finally got the proper notification from authorities, they were all completely devastated. But the case was far from over. Now that the authorities had found Danielle, it was time to figure out what had happened to her. 
When they recovered Danielle, she had been underwater in that river for the entire time that she had been missing, which at this point was nearly an entire month. They also found that Danielle had been weighted down with cinder blocks that had been tied to her ankles and her waist with a bright yellow rope. These cinder blocks were also very unique. The lead detective describes them as being an old-style cinder block that you would typically find around older homes. When you look at these cinder blocks, they're made up with pea-sized pebbles and rocks, and they're not your typical cinder blocks that you would go and buy at Lowe's or Home Depot in modern times, which this was something that authorities noticed immediately and made them hopeful that they'll likely be able to figure out where these came from. Because you just don't see this style very often anymore. The following day after the recovery of Danielle's body, it was ruled that she had died from asphyxiation and that she was likely strangled. Also, the medical examiner found stuffed inside her mouth a sock that matched the sock her aunt had found near the creek trail. The investigators began to theorize that whatever happened to Danielle happened down at the creek near her home, and that's why the other sock was found there. They believe that maybe some sort of altercation or struggle had taken place there. But how and why was her body found in South River, which was a 30-minute drive from that creek? It was clear to authorities that she was brought from the creek area and dumped inside that river in an attempt to hide her body. And as authorities began looking a little deeper into the area and who lived near there, they realized that this river was about a mile from Jamichael's house. Authorities went straight to Jamichael's house and asked him to come in for questioning. Once more, he fully cooperated with authorities. He denied any involvement and was all cool and calm, and he assured authorities that he had nothing to do with her disappearance or her murder. And even though her body was found near his home, there was no way they'll find anything on him to prove that he was involved because he wasn't. Jamichael turned the questioning on the detectives and he asked them if they thought he was a smart kid, which the detective who was interviewing him had said that, yes, he does think he's a smart kid. And then Jamichael asked him, well, if you think I'm a smart kid, why do you think I'd be dumb enough to dump her body near my home? Little did Jamichael know, the authorities were at his home at that exact moment with a search warrant turning that place upside down. And right off the bat, they spotted something that caught their eye. Right outside, near the driveway, they found a pile of cinder blocks. And it shouldn't be a surprise, but those cinder blocks also matched the ones that had been tied to Danielle's lifeless body. They also found rope that had matched the rope that had also been tied to Danielle. The authorities at the house called the ones back at the station and told them of their discovery. When Jamichael was confronted with this information, he continued to deny, deny, deny. And after hours of questioning, they let him go that night knowing full well that he was the killer. But they still had work to do. They needed to prove that his alibi that night was a lie. They learned that though his grandma and mom said that he was at home, they weren't actually in the same room as him, 
and they never truly laid eyes on him and just assumed that he was home all night. So the only other real person that could vouch that he was at home was Jamichael's best friend, Dominic. They brought Dominic back in for questioning and gave him another chance to admit what had happened that night, and he immediately lawyered up. Four days later, Jamichael walked into the station to confess. He said that on the night of the murder, he and Dominic had snuck out of the house and drove over to Danielle's because he needed to talk to her. He said that when they arrived at her house, he threw his wallet at her bedroom window to get her attention for her to come outside. He said that when she finally came out, she got into his car and they drove down to the creek where the two of them got out and walked down together to talk. Jamichael said that for months, Danielle had been telling him that she was pregnant, and so he took her there for her to take a pregnancy test in front of him. He said that if she had been pregnant, he was willing to take care of the baby and provide for it, but he told her that he didn't want to be together with her. He said that this was when Danielle snapped on him and punched him in the face, and in a rage, he grabbed her by the throat and then blacked out. Jamichael said that when he came to, Danielle was lying there unresponsive and not breathing, and he said that he panicked and ran back to the car and got Dominic to help him load Danielle's body into the back of his car. When they asked Jamichael about the sock in Danielle's mouth, he said that Dominic had placed it there because while she was in the back of the car, she was making noises. So Dominic stuffed the sock into her mouth so they wouldn't hear it. They then tossed her phone out the window on I-95, drove back to Jamichael's to get the rope and cinder blocks, and then tossed her into the river. Jamichael was arrested for second-degree murder, and a few days later, Dominic was also arrested. All of Danielle's friends were shocked by the news. The authorities and her family, however, were not sold with his story on what had happened, nor were they happy with the charge being second-degree murder and not first-degree. The authorities fully believed that Jamichael had planned the murder that he purposely left his phone at home that night and went there to kill Danielle because he believed that she was pregnant and a baby was going to throw a wrench in his plans to become a Marine. Let me also mention the fact that if you remember, I said that Jamichael had texted some people during the time that they believed Danielle had gone missing. The authorities found out that those text messages had been sent using an app that allows you to schedule your text message to be sent out at a certain time. So this once more appeared to be a premeditated murder. He thought enough through to leave his phone at home so it wouldn't be tracked to anywhere else And he thought to schedule text messages to be sent out during that time, so it appeared that he was using his phone when it had been left behind at the house. If that doesn't say premeditated murder, I don't freaking know what will. Jamichael Malloy fully believed that he was going to get away with murder and that he could outsmart the police. 
The prosecution wanted to up the charge to first-degree murder, which would mean that the case would then go to trial. And they feared that if the jury found Jamichael not guilty of first-degree murder, but instead guilty of voluntary manslaughter, that that would mean that he would be let out of prison within five to seven years. Nobody wanted that to happen. So they didn't want to risk it, and they stuck with the second-degree charge. Jamichael ended up taking a plea deal and pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 to 31 years in prison. Jamichael's best friend Dominic pled guilty to accessory and received six to eight years in prison. In 2017, at what would have been Danielle's high school graduation, her school honored her during the ceremony. They saved a seat for Danielle among the classmates, and the chair was decorated with ribbons and bows to honor her. Rona was presented with a shadow box with a cap and gown and a diploma, and that absolutely meant the world to her. China says that since the death of Danielle, her sister Rona hasn't been the same. The entire family feels her profound absence, and there isn't a day that goes by that they don't think of Danielle and her infectious laugh. Though they got justice for their sweet Danielle, it will never make things right for their family. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you join by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. You can also find us over on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast, and if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you want to keep up with my life and what I have going on, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's case. Kinsey will be back on Monday with another Missing Monday. Until next time, be aware and take care.